Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ginsburg, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for being here. This is a weekly conversation with someone that I find really inspiring. And if things go well, it's a conversation that will inspire you too. I'm looking to talk with people that have achieved something remarkable in their lives. Today is no exception. Today I'm talking with one of the founders of Landmark Australian Satire Collective, The Chaser. Um, speaking with Dom Knight. You can follow him on Twitter right now, at D-O-M-K-N-I-G-H-T. Hello from Brisbane. I'm uh, in a Queenslander home in the suburbs after watching some great cricket today. I'm in a share house. That's why you can hear TVs and stuff in the background. But you've lived in a share house. You know what it's like. So that's why there's noise. So that's where we are. It's great to be here. I'm here seeing my family. And I'm, uh, you know, glad to watch some World Cup with my younger brother early in the morning, which is fun. I hope you've had a good week. hope it's been good for you. Um, I, I went and did yoga again for the first time in a while. I've been really cycling a lot, but uh, I went and did yoga again. and I should do more of it. 
I used to really enjoy it. It's been a little while. You don't need to know that. Let me tell you about my guest today. Um, oh, hang on. Did I tell you about my first anniversary show? I'm having a first anniversary show. It's not far away. Um, and I'm going to throw it out to you. So I want to answer your questions. So just, it's really easy to do so. You can leave me a voicemail. Just go to osherginsberg.com, O-S-H-E-R-G-U-N-S-B-E-R-G.com. Scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. On the right, there it is. See, send a voicemail. Click on that. And uh, click leave me a voicemail. And just when it says record, just say, hey, this is who I am. This is where I'm from. This is what I want to know. Got some great ones already. It's going to be a good show. So, yeah, thanks heaps for responding. It's going to be good. going to be fun. So my guest this week, um, my run of media insiders continues. <laughs> my guest this week is Dom Knight. Dominic Knight, one of the founding members of The Chaser, which is an Australian satire group. They've been causing mischief for the better part of 15 years now. He's currently the evening's announcer on the ABC in New South Wales and the ACT. He speaks to a large swathe of Australia each and every night. His story is a very interesting one. He takes us all the way back to his first day of high school when he met another kid there by the name of Chaz Lichardello, one of the other founders of The Chaser, and how they built, along with some others, one of the strongest voices of satire and challenge of authority that Australia has seen since perhaps Norman Gunston. You may have to Google that name, but that's I'm calling it. He and I talk about why it's important to challenge authority, why we as Australians call our prime ministers by their first names, and why he has to visit the immigration's scary secondary screening room every single time he tries to enter the USA. It's a good story. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at Dom Knight, D-O-M-K-N-I-G-H-T. Let him know you heard him here. And enjoy this chat with one of Australia's self-proclaimed meekest smart asses, Dom Knight. Dom or Dominic? Um, I tend to get Dom these days. I'm, everyone calls me Dom. I use Dominic for... Usually when I write stuff. But for formal purposes? For formal purposes. May I call you Dom? Yeah, Good morning, Dom. Good morning. How are you, mate? Very well, thank you. This is good coffee. So I just, I just made some coffee. Dom, uh, Dom got into my house about five minutes ago, and I've just uh, ground him some total coffee nerdily, nerdery. Smells very nice. That's single origin roasters from here in Sydney. Um, I like to grind it myself. And the AeroPress. Yeah, the big plunger. Oh, man. I used oh. to... I not, didn't drink coffee for a long time, and then I got back on it, and it's just fantastic. No, it's a good way to have it, because it's so flavoursome. It, it's kind of like... If you haven't tried it, it's kind of like if coffee were tea. Mm-hmm. You get all the dimension of, of that and all the, the flavour that you normally don't get from espresso. Yeah. So there you go. You are at Dom Knight on Twitter? Yeah. D-O-M-K-N-I-G-H-T. Thank you. Is where you can find him on Twitter. And... Um, you can also go to domnight.com for uh, all your details about Dom's adventures in media, which include uh, writing novels, being a part of The Chaser, and hosting Australia's most loved radio quiz every single night on ABC 702 and others. 666 yeah. six, 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 six in yeah, Canberra. Yeah, the, 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 the station of the beast in Canberra. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, around, around New South Wales and the ACT. Yeah. They call it triple six. It's very much, you're not going to call it 666. It is triple six, and that's the branding. So we, we, we honour that. <laughs> Okie dokie then. Well, there's a, lot, there's a lot to talk about. I'm really grateful you're here. But we have, surprisingly, a lot of things in common, you and I. Uh, number one is that we both went to an all-boys high school. 
Oh, really? You poor yeah. thing. Yeah, right. What was your No, uh, look, my, my school um, was great in lots of ways. I went to public school in North Sydney and North Sydney Demonstration School, which was very, very lovely, um, but then got into Sydney Grammar School, which is a fairly fancy private school, one of the oldest schools in Sydney. It would claim to be the oldest, but there's a debate about that, um, and suddenly started being in this world of beautiful old buildings and calling people by their surnames. That was very strange. I went from being Dom to, to being called Knight mm. and um, being in first form and having to wear a tie every morning and all this stuff. But, yeah, I'm, I basically what was great about it was, firstly, that um, the art side of things were amazing. So my brother's a painter. He got into that there. A lot of people from there go on to become painters. It's got a really good music department. So I was in the choir and orchestra and all that sort of nerdy stuff. That's where I learned to, to play the double bass. It's another thing we've got in common. The, the, That's the other the thing we have in common. We'll talk things, about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I did debating and plays and every conceivable thing. Um, but in hindsight, the other thing I really like about it is that there was a really nice piss-takey sensibility at the school. Um, basically because it's, it's just a pack of smart-asses, often quite privileged smart-asses, but ra- you know, there was a school newspaper which I edited and all this kind of stuff. And that So in that probably began the, the earliest seeds of the chaser. I worked with Chaz Pichadillo and Charles Firth on that and we basically poked fun at everyone, including ourselves, and had a great time. So mostly, except for the complete absence of women, um, it was a great environment to be a teenager in. I'll get back to you meeting Chaz and Charles at, at school, but um, I'd, I'm interested in that because I know you've got... Do you have sisters? No. Yeah, I don't have sisters either. And this idea of going to an all-boys school and only having brothers, um, just the idea that... My experience was that it spat me out at the other end and I had no idea how to talk. Oh, about. absolutely. Um, no, and having gone to a co-ed school, it was... I remember um, we went and had Pre-puberty. a... Pre-puberty. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it arrived early for me, but yeah. We went... I remember going and seeing the... You know, in year six, we were trying to decide which school to go to and it was between grammar and a co-ed option that I'd gotten into as well. And um, we said, you know, my, my parents said we we're a bit worried about, you know, Dominic not getting to know girls, quite appreciately, really. And um, the, the, the master of the lower school, as he was called, John Sheldon, said, well, they can meet them on the train. <laughs> the only problem was I lived at Milson's Point, so I had two stops uh, or about five minutes in which to do that, and it was never enough time for my, uh, my, my charmed tongue to... Uh, to do the job and, and chat anyone up. So there are all these girls from, from primary school who I sort of saw for two seconds and waved at and then they went, yeah. Yeah, I had, I, I remember getting out uh, like 18. I was already working as a roadie at the time um, uh, when I left school and I remember getting out just like not knowing at all how to talk to girls or being terrified. totally scared mm. of them, not knowing why they were looking at me or if they were looking at me. I still don't know. I still yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily get easier. No, uh, I, there's people who grow up with sisters. It must be must be really wonderful. Yeah, I used to envy James Matheson, who I worked with for a long yeah. time on uh, Australian Idol and Channel V. We worked from 2000 to 2009 together, and we were like in each other's pockets for those years, pretty much. We worked almost every day together, and he is one boy. He's got five sisters. Whoa, his intimate knowledge of the workings of of girls, like not only like being able to, but not like for pickup purposes, but oh, all right, so you can tell she's upset before she knows she's upset. Wow, I wish I knew oh how to gosh, do that. Oh gosh, an early warning system. Oh, he was incredible. Yeah, yeah. I had no clue. 
none, none at all. So, because I was also that. I was like the plays and I remember, you know, playing double bass and feeling very fancy about having oh, a Oh, definitely bass. fancy. Like, you know, I had a pretty high self-esteem in, in that respect. You know, I was kind of part of everything going on, but yeah. So when you were playing double bass, were you, did, were you like wanting to be Ray Brown? Like, who was it? How did double well, bass come thing, into your life? The great thing about the bass is that you can use it for everything, but actually... Um, the, the reason I started playing it was because I wanted to be in the orchestra, I decided. I mean, my school had a really good orchestra, like pretty much a full symphony orchestra, very, which is very rare in school. It's a lot of kids. And my um, aunt is a cellist, and so she was, she was living in Rome at the time and she was out here, and I sort of just mentioned, oh, it'd be great, great to be in the orchestra. You know, I look at the cellists and they're really good, and she said, why don't you pick up, why don't you try the double bass? Because there's never enough double bass players, which is... Uh, True, and if you haven't seen one, they're the huge things they use in, in jazz. They're taller than uh, almost any you human being. You played a full size? Yeah. Oh, uh, no, three-quarter. I played it. Mine's a three-quarter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, full is just almost ridiculous. You sort of look, have to crowd, sort of yeah, lean You need to it. buy a van if you yeah, have a full-size double bass. Yeah, it's ridiculously big. So, um, but my school had some of them. Like, there was a room where you could go and there were double basses sitting in it and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So it was an amazingly privileged thing. And so I started playing it in year eight, and then... The beginning of year nine, I was in the orchestra because I needed someone. And um, the, I mean, basically, I had no idea what I was doing. I was pretty much miming for the first couple of years. But oh, yeah, I did that. <laughs> yeah, no one could tell. Well, that probably could tell, but I just played quietly. But then the people around me were incredible. I mean, the guy, one of the people older than me became a professional orchestral player. Another person became a professional jazz player. So it was a great environment. I started taking jazz lessons. I started playing electric bass and taught myself cure bass lines and all this sort of stuff so it was a great it was a great what was your first time. high school band called i didn't really have one what no we back in those days we did form a, a cover band called nerdvana for the year 12 um nerdvana nerdvana i love you basically um what was that was that for the gig in mind yeah it was for it was for the um they had a like a year 12 review thing which um only ever happened once because we mucked it up so badly that they'd cancelled it forevermore. But me and this other guy, um, who's a lawyer now, I think, called Jacob, and this other guy, Gibran, who's an amazingly good drummer. I think he became a pro drummer. Um, and, yeah, and a guitarist. We started this, um, this Nerdvana and got up and basically people thought we were nerds and we just smashed out. It smells like Teen Spirit. And it was just amazing. And Jacob was just throwing himself all over the stage and... He may have stage-dived at some point. And, yeah, we felt like briefly kings of the school. If we'd done that, you know, years earlier, we might have actually been slightly, you know, invited to slightly more influential parties or something. <laughs> was, uh, I'm assuming it was uh, some sort of a rugby school? Not really. No? Um, well, we were the school that, um, when I was in year 11, year 12, uh, what are they called? Um... Which school was it? Scott, some school got in all these really good players. And basically our, our team kept getting injured. You know, the first game of the season, half of our rugby team got injured. So, no, we, we were the nerds, definitely. The whole school. Well, there were a few rugby players. I mean, there was one guy who went and ended up in the Wallabies. I don't know how. But right. No, we were... We were wow, my school was the complete opposite. We were like... like all rugby. Soccer. We were, we were okay at soccer and tennis. That was yeah. sort of... Yeah, but forget rugby and Right. Cricket. So that must have been pretty cool because I was, like, in my... School experience. It was de- we were definitely much the ones in the corner, talking about cure baselines and you know, yeah. And no, just... no. There were a lot of nerds. I mean, basically, the really nerdy people at my school ended up going to university and joining the group that does the 
um, medieval reenactments. I mean, yeah. they, were, they were way like there were plenty of people you could feel cooler than at my school, which was very good because <laughs> I think almost anywhere else I would have been at the at the end of the school. That's that's pretty lucky. So tell me about the you you because I'm fascinated lately. I've been really fascinated by the power of networks. Yeah. Right. And you've been pretty much, you've been building yours since you were a teenager. I mean, you what do you remember about meeting? Chazla Chardello. Well, that was the thing that no, the first day. One, no one told me, right? No one told me that the good thing about schools like this is that you would emerge with you emerge with an incredible network. And it's not fair. I have all sorts of issues with it, but it's just the way the world works. And I've been very lucky to benefit from that. So day one of um, of school, I sit down, you know, there's a roll call at the start of the day. We all go around the room saying what our names oh, are. JKL, right? We sort of go from there. And, you know, I'm, I'm night. And then... Um, there's this guy sitting in the back row and when it comes to saying what his name is, he says, Chajitel, and he just keeps going, Chajitel, and basically the first thing I ever heard him say was a, a stupid joke about his own surname. So, yeah, Chaz Lachadello, um, and every teacher couldn't pronounce his name and it was, it was just the first day was just comedy and then I found myself, due to having similar surnames, yeah, on the same woodwork bench as him in Year 7 and we were both rubbish at woodwork and um, had a great time, so... I made a friend because I didn't know anyone when I, when I started in Year 7. And uh, fortunately, I got to befriend the, the class clown. Right. And so were you two often separated? Were you in trouble a lot? Not really. I mean, no. Chaz's thing was he would never wear a tie. And so he kept getting in trouble for that. But we were pretty, we were pretty well behaved, really. No, we were just smart asses, really. Right. In a pretty in a pretty meek way, and you know, we went on to do that with the chaser. I think. Well, yeah, that's that's meek smart assery is what we've always done. Isn't <laughs> it? But at what point did you realise that what the two of you had, or what you were working off, or you were bouncing off each other, was you were able to cr- create something better together? Well, this is the interesting thing, particularly with with the Tiger, the newspaper that we were doing, was that it was really fun working with other people, and um, essentially we kind of scooped up a lot of the interesting characters from around the school and, and Charles Firth was a year older than us but he was keen to write for it and all this kind of stuff. So it was it was natural to do things together. There was sort of safety in numbers as well. So one of the things Chaz and I did was every every um, edition we'd, we'd write a music column. Well, he, it was under his name but we'd sort of do the jokes together which was called Looney's Tunes and basically it was him taking the piss out of whoever, like Lenny Kravitz, you know... Um, Ace of Bass, whatever band, bands were big at the time, he'd review their albums and just absolutely tee off on them in quite a funny way. Um, incre- you know, incredibly... Like, reading back on it now, it's kind of cringe-inducing, but at the time it was, it was great, and Chaz, you know, everyone loved his column and all this sort of stuff. So we essentially, like many nerds before us, learned that people liked us when we made jokes, especially about ourselves. And so I, I remember there was a, there's a Chaz and Dom's guide, a guide to dating which we put together in about year 11, something like that, when neither of us had... Be- we, we were set both several years away from our first date and it just had incredibly bad tips. Like, one of the places we recommended to, to take your, fir- your first date was Parramatta City Raceway for the monster trucks, you know, like, just... So we were, we were aware of how hopeless we were. We just didn't know how to solve it. But in the meantime, we, we, we joked about it. So, yeah, we certainly, I guess, started early. My uh, school... They didn't really say stick together and, like, this is how business is made by, you know, making businesses and staying close to the guys you were at school with. I couldn't wait to get out of there, actually. And the only thing I did with people that I was at school with was playing bands. And as soon as we were out, that was all I was interested in. But yeah, and that's... I, mean, I wish I'd done that in hindsight, but... 
that was the time. But yeah, right. Um, but it was very much in my school. It was like if you don't get out of school and go straight into law, then pretty much you've failed at life. Uh, law or yeah. medicine? Well, that was that was probably why Chaz and I both enrolled in law upon leaving <laughs> upon leaving school. And but there was a huge fear, right? Like I don't know why we thought, particularly coming from this somewhat privileged background. Now Chaz and I grew up in homes without all that much money necessarily, and, and we really felt. How poor were you? Sorry. No, we really felt... I mean, we were fine. Like, you know, there's no, no real issues. But we're, we're not talking skiing holidays in Austria. No, exactly. Yeah. You know, the school fees were always a little bit of a, a, little bit of a challenge. Mm. Um, and, you know, and all the other things you, you had to buy. So that we were, I was very conscious of, of how lucky I was and the sacrifice my parents were making to send me to this, this fancy school. And so you didn't want to waste that. But also there was this huge ego thing about it as well, that you felt like you were special in the... School taught, told you you were special, so you you really had to go and do the the big degree that you know. I didn't had no interest in being a lawyer, but it seemed to me that people who were in, interested in words and language and all these things, that was what you did. And if you didn't do that, you were sort of a flop. And so that's what I enrolled in uh, at uni and, and went straight on to Sydney uni to do arts law, um, the combined degree. And, and yeah, so I gave into that um, that thing. I, I certainly didn't have enough non-conformity to, to get out of it. I, I remember that similar vibe, like, you are, what do they used to call us? You are gentlemen of terrace. You are, you know, they were, that's how they spoke at us. And, of course, we left with our chests just, bah, we will rule the world! And then we got out of school, it was like, oh, we're just schlubs like everybody else. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I mean, the school that I went to, there are heaps of politicians come out of that school, business leaders, judges, prime ministers, all these things. So, and you're made very aware of that, that there's this idea of these the old Sydneyans and that this network extends everywhere. And it does. It's, it's mm. very much the case. Fortunately, there are a lot of people from my school who went on to do cool things as well, who you can sort of see artists and so on. And, and so one person who was a huge hero of ours at school was Rob Hurst, the drummer for Midnight Oil, oh. who used to play drums in, in the school big band. Like, <laughs> you know, you can imagine how amazing those solos must have been. Um, and so we knew that there were other paths. And that was one of the nice things about the school was... You know, if you were going to go and become a concert violinist, they'd be just as proud of you. Oh. Um, maybe, you know, going into a band, not probably, but, mm. yeah, it was just... It was very, very establishment, and it, it was designed. I mean, the school was... There's an act of parliament that says that my school will exist. It's the only one with that. Huh. And it, it will exist to, to create gentlemen for the university that had just been founded. And so huh. it's always fulfilled that role of funneling people into the upper echelons of society. It's just that's what it's designed to do, and it still does it. That amazing. So when you when you got to university and suddenly you're like, oh, like there's there's girls and drugs and university politics and was it like that first day again? Were you just like clinging onto Chaz, going, what do we do? A little bit, yeah. But it was great because, I mean, it was kind of disappointing on one level because I thought I'd go to uni and suddenly I'd, um, because having come from a public school, even though it was fairly, you know, middle class, upper middle class public school, I'd felt like I'd gone into this very narrow part of society with the rich kids and I thought it would expand out again at uni. And it did a bit. But, you know, I thought there'd be people from lots of different backgrounds, from Western Sydney. I thought there'd be a lot, a lot of Aboriginal kids at uni and all this sort of stuff. wasn't at all. It was just that all the people from selective schools and private schools, they were the ones who were doing activities and, and at the forefront of everything because they'd come in expecting to be dominant and they'd learnt how to do a thousand activities at the same time and all this stuff. And so that's who it was. It was kids from selective schools and, and private schools like mine. And um, I met a lot of like-minded, great people that I'm friends with. But it's certainly, you know, I mean, there were all the usual experiments with, with girls and drugs and alcohol and all these things. But it was 
very much, you know, that still in that bubble that I've never really broken out of, let's face it. It's certainly, though, uh, uh, an environment rife to make fun of. Yes, and that was that was great. I mean, uh, I gravitated towards the, the same stuff I'd done. I did debating, I did publications. Chaz immediately went to the, the university reviews and ended up directing the law review and all this sort of stuff, and I was in the band and, and, and wrote sketches and all this sort of stuff. So it was all there for us, and the time when I was at uni has turned out to be kind of a golden age of, of comedy, really. There have been heaps of people who have gone on to do amazing things, people like Tom Gleeson um, was there, Andrew O'Keefe was there... Um, Heaps of people who've just, just gone and had careers in comedy. Sarah Kendall is a really good comic in the UK. And so these were people getting up on stage and, and doing theatre sports and all this kind of stuff. So I never quite had the guts to do that at, at uni, but, you know, it was there and, and the atmosphere was there. And in terms of politics, yeah, I mean, I wrote articles making fun of student politicians and annoyed them and then went on to write similar articles making fun of real politicians and... That we didn't notice, but nevertheless, yeah, it, it's all been a continuum, I guess, in hindsight. It's so important, though, to have that point of your career um, where you can just kind of get up and just do it and just kind of be shit at it for a while. There's no other way. Yeah, there, there really is. And, and uni's great for that. School was great for that. Um, and the whole thing, if you, I, don't know, I don't know whether the 10,000 hours theory actually holds. You've got to do something for that amount of time. But it's like anything. I mean, there's virtually no one. Maybe Daniel Johns is the first person who you know, was amazing when he started. But most people have to do a couple of years of being hopeless and earning no, no money. And I would put it you... to you that Silverchair did their 10,000 hours in public because yeah. their frog stomp to diorama is... There's like... a progression there. Oh, there? man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Same with Hanson. Hanson did their 10,000 hours, well, a little bit before that, but then by the time they got to their second album, they were just incredible songs. I know about your, your deep respect for Hanson. Mate, you get them on your show when they come out. They're touring in about a month. That'd be fascinating. They're amazing guys. Check it out. I can, I can tear it up. Um, yeah. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, I, I, so when you look back now, I mean, you say you look back now at the stuff you wrote in high school and you kind of cringed a bit. When you look at the stuff you did in uni, you're like, oh, yeah, green. Yeah, some, no, some of it. Look, I mean, you, for what it was, I mean, you know, it was just you, you work within the environment that you're mm. in. And, and so it's nice to see people, and a lot of people I know from... Um, from from those days, just going and doing the same sort of thing now. Like they'll go and be journalists now, they'll go and be politicians now. Whatever it is, we've sort of all hit grown up land now in our in our sort of mid to late thirties. And it's just pe- people. It's incredible how how few people reinvent themselves. How many people just continue along the same path. And um, it's not. It's never that far. I mean, Australia's like this. It's never that far from a good school or university to, to the national level. It's a small country and, and we're very lucky. I mean, sitting here in Bondi with all these filmmakers around us who, you know, you, I've always thought it's a really good exa- example. You can get a film made so much more easily here than in Hollywood and then once you've got a film made, you know, you can, people can watch it and so you can, you can leapfrog to the head of the queue in Australia. It's one of the great things about still working here, I think. I remember being... You, you mentioned student politics, politics before. I've got an elder brother, 23 months older than me, and he was always very into the you know, kind of the shouty rec, huh. rec club kind of uh, vibe. He's, a, he's actually he's a member of a political party now, um, which is fascinating watching the way he talks yeah. about that. Um, but I remember at being always very afraid of student politics and very afraid of that whole scene. I think it was because I, I was never really... I felt like I just wasn't smart enough to talk to those, those people. When you challenged those people, is that when you realised... Because like, I often wonder, like, did you realise, like, if I'm going to challenge these people, I'm going to have to 
do it in a smart way. Otherwise, they're going to shoot, shoot me down. Well, I don't know that I wanted to challenge them uh, as I'm such. Making I mean, fun of someone you're yeah, challenging I mean, them. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I was sort of gently making fun of them, really. And I ended up writing a novel about student politics because it's been such a... It's just such a, a, a fascinating breeding ground for, you know, people who end up running the country. And That's where they, That's where they do their 10,000 hours. Exactly. <laughs> and and, and mm. they do that and... It's just hilarious that the, the trivialities of the things they argue over at that level, but then they go on and it doesn't matter what you're arguing about, it, this, the thing is to be able to argue. So, yeah, look, I guess, you know, I, I've always been someone who believed in things, you know, and I guess as well you learned early doing, I, I guess with the upbringing that I had, I learned early that humour was a very good way of making your point and humour allows you to be sincere in a way that you can't be... You know, if, if you write the same point as, a, as an opinion piece, you sound terribly earnest and all this sort of stuff. So humour was always something that I, I saw as being a really good way of, of getting your point across. And I think the peak for me at university came when I did, a, uh, I did a profile of all the candidates in the union election. And it's so incensed one of the candidates that he um, went, drove around the campus in his car early in the morning, grabbed all the copies of the newspaper and dumped them in the nearby lake. <laughs> um, thousands of... You know, and we went and took a photo for the cover of the next edition of the all all of the newspapers city being dragged out of the pond. And um, he he went on to write a book about it and uh, and admitted to it. Uh, called something like Confessions of a Young Liberal, and um, now has a bit of perspective on it, which I was very glad to see because that was crazy. I think he got about twenty votes in the end in the election anyway. So yeah. all that effort for for nothing. But um, that was the kind of kind of place it was. It all seemed really important who got to be on a union board because. You know, they, they could affect the catering budget. I remember as a kid, I would see it with my parents, my friends' parents getting upset at soccer schedules or, ah. whatever, or whatever it was. But it seemed like the end of the world. Yeah, and, and that's, one of the, that's one of the really fun things about, about a comedy, I suppose, and satire is whenever there are people who think something's more important than it probably should be, that's rich pickings, you know, for, for satire. That's, that's a real opening there. I saw this great... Um, Sign. I think it was at Nunawading Council in, in Victoria, put a sign up um, at the soccer field saying, please remember, parents, A, this is a game, B, the referees are volunteers. It's all this sort of stuff about basic etiquette for, yeah. for parents screaming and taking things too seriously. You know, E, this is not the World Cup. And <laughs> I'm sure that, that that actually was needed at various points in time. And student politics is like that. It's, I mean, the, the fights we used to get into, and, you know, over things like whether or not you, you would use fair trade coffee for the campus um, coffee outlets. Like, you know, not important on one level, but it's hardly going to save the, the rainforest, that, that particular order changing. And yet that was just the most passionate thing. And, and yeah, that, that lack of perspective is... Um, and and it, I mean, you see even in, even in Australian politics, you, you, I mean, you must have this coming back to Australia and seeing some things that we're arguing about and just you walk in and say, gosh, you guys do not know how lucky you have it. You oh, know? It's just extraordinary. I have served you fair trade coffee this morning, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Not that I'm saying it's unimportant, no. but uh, that's probably but, where I know, got the a, idea from. I saw the label. On a wider, on a wider point, I, mean, like, I can see, like, I... You know, it's the little things and the little choices that I make that allow me to sleep at night, like knowing that I'm doing what I can in the sphere of my influence to reduce my impact is important to me. Um, choosing to eat to not eat meat uh purely from a resources point of view I'm, i love animals but i like people more and we can feed more people with the food we feed animals that we then slaughter and we can 
there's more clean water. So what did I hear today? Like it takes something like 5,000 litres to make one hamburger. 5,000 yeah. litres of water yeah, to make one hamburger. Yeah, I've read that. The, the, the so, biggest problem with beef is actually impact on the land, but also the, yeah. the, the water. And it takes three kilograms of uh, grain to make one kilogram of beef. And that's so that's two kilograms of grain that people can't eat. It's pretty crazy. Well, yeah, it's probably not a good example because actually a university, you know, we had 40,000 students, so that probably would have been genuinely impactful. But mm. one of the huge fights when I was there was over whether to send the, the student rep- Students' Representative Council, on which I sat briefly during my... I accidentally got elected to it. That's another story. <laughs> um, it sent $200 to a Spartacist on death row in America called Mamiya uh, Abu Jamal, who was a sort of cause celebre at the time. Now... Felt very sorry for the guy, um, but the idea that students should be kicking in two hundred bucks—I mean, that people argued about that for years and years and years—and uh-huh. so that was a. I'm sure Mamiya was very grateful for the, you know, one second of lawyers' bills allowed him to pay. But um, just that sort of thing where it just seemed it's slightly out of proportion. But no, it's look, it's true. We, we do need to. You do need to to live a life that that is a, a conscientious one and and be comfortable with your choices. And um, you know, there are five billion of us, and if if we all seven. No, there's seven. Whoa. That's that's out of date. Seven billion. Seven billion. Yeah. 14 by 2050. Stop having children, people. Honestly. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of us. Yeah. And so, (laughs) I mean, you you start thinking 1% of that, that's that's actually very impactful. Yeah. Yeah. So when the the Chaser newspaper, I remember it floating around. I was in Ramsgate Avenue at the other end of the beach. Um, I remember the Chaser newspaper floating around. It was brought home by my lawyer flatmate, Bubble. And Bubble brought it home. Like, this is, this is good shit. One of his friends, he found it. Somehow it came oh, home to our yeah, house. Lawyers, I'm not surprised. We didn't well, need, somehow we it came lawyers. home to our house. And then it was almost like the, the distance between the first time I saw the Chaser newspaper, which you, I'm assuming, self-published and self-funded. Yeah. The first time I saw that to the first time I saw CNN and N... Four ends? Four ends. Four ends. CNN and N. First time I saw CNN and N, it seemed like it was like just weeks between when I saw this kind of really interesting satirist's newspaper to, oh, now there's these children on television because you were younger than me. Yeah, yeah, we were. Um, that, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't very long in hindsight. It seemed like a long time at the time. We started printing the newspaper in May 1999 and funded it by borrowing money off our parents, um, maxing out credit cards and living hand-to-mouth. I mean, no-one got paid for that thing for, for many years and even then not much. Um, but we ended up doing 90 editions of that newspaper, so it was, it was a huge Weekly. project. Uh, notionally fortnightly, but it, <laughs> we were very regular. It's like my other podcast. We try and do it weekly. Most of the... Most of the um, editions had a sort of a, a letter in the front saying, sorry, but we assumed it was sort of endearingly hopeless and our subscribers need to understand that, like, they were giving us 20 bucks for 10 editions or whatever and we were kind of going, thanks, and, and they were kind of going, 20 bucks, who cares? But, yeah, so, um, no, and, and it did happen quite quickly because our first series was in 2001. So two and a half years, it's actually not much time at all, but it seemed, it seemed like ages. Um, but the newspaper never did well financially, but it was quite good at getting sort of passed around and, and noticed by people who um, were looking for comedy, I suppose. And, and so Andrew Denton found it, John Clark found it, um, a few other people found it, John Singleton found it and sent us a cheque, which is very nice of him. We bought a, bought a printer with it. Thanks, Singo, for that, uh, which we called the Singo. Um, 
So, you know, it was sort of doing the rounds, but never hit anything like a critical mass. I mean, the distribution was that it was available in very, very few news agents hidden under various uh, foreign language newspapers. So mm. if you went and looked in between, you know, Il Globo and the Chinese Herald, you'd find the chaser. <laughs> and Yeah, so it wasn't a great business, but it certainly, but you know, people noticed. And the thing about it was that they, because it came out regularly enough, they were kind of like, oh, well, you know, these guys can can write a bit. So they, they gave us chances and... Um, fortunately, Andrew Denton was our uh, mentor and um, hard to think of anyone better, really. I want to I get to Andrew Denton, but just come back a bit. So say what was it, what was, I'm, sure, I'm assuming by about like issue 30 or 40, you were in like, a, a, like quite the cohesive group and you'd formed the core of what would then become The Chaser? Well, that's the thing. I mean, pe people sometimes ask us why we're an all-male group and all that sort of stuff. And basically, Charles Firth had the idea. He finished uni. Um, after many, many years of an arts degree, you know, one of these, I don't know how long it was, seven-year arts degrees or whatever. That's a short one. Yeah, absolutely. Didn't... didn't. <laughs> Everyone's got that flat, mate. It's and, like, yeah. oh, yeah, he's been at uni for 12 years. And Charles... Yeah, well, so that was Charles. And Charles um, had this idea that he wanted to do a satirical newspaper. We hadn't seen The Onion in those days at all, and, and so this is sort of this new idea. And somehow we convinced us and convinced lots of people to, to contribute to this thing, and... In hindsight, it seems crazy even then to start a, a new kind of newsprint thing, with the exception of the Saturday paper, which has just started amazingly bravely. But, yeah, I mean, in hindsight, we just loved newsprint and we loved that student pub newspaper sensation of the thing coming out and having ink on our fingers and all this stuff. And plus, if you're going to take the piss out of print and do a... You know, ha having a front cover that's an A3 piece of paper with a photo and a big headline, you can't beat that. No tablet can beat that. Um, for for a laugh, and so yeah, we we really wanted to do it. And even though it was very clear early on that we were going to, if anything, lose a lot of money on it, we just loved it so much that we just kept going as long as humanly possible. So what was the you know what what did you learn when you were in that that routine of of, of writing and and trying to pump it out? And what oh, did you learn about working together? Yeah, you were asking about, about the yeah. group, and this was the thing that that really started early was that we we were very. Um, we had a lot of strong egos, basically, in, in the group. I mean, I'm certainly no shrinking violet, and I was probably the least uh, kind of assertive of the three who started it. The three editors, which were Craig Rucastle, Julian Morrow, and Charles, Charles and me, um, we were all, you know, very much wanting to back ourselves, and so we just ended up having to have a thing where we voted. And then people like Andrew Hansen and, and Chaz wrote for us from the beginning. Chris Taylor joined very soon and became probably the, the best writer of satirical news that we had. Um, but, yeah, it was all... The, the newspaper was always done in a last-minute rush as an all-nighter. We'd always brainstorm the covers together and write it together and come up with something at 3am and hope that it was funny the next day. And, and you know, it was, that was the only way we knew how to work. That's how we'd done our student newspapers. That's how we did this. And, you know, the guys still do all-nighters in the edit suite. I don't know how they manage it nowadays, but um, it's just the way that we work. And it, we've always had the rule that majority rules it doesn't you know you don't get the joke that you want um the group has to like it and as frustrating as that was at the beginning we've learned that that's a good system to have because usually it means you, you choose your best material and so at what point now i should explain who andrew denton is to people listening overseas andrew denton i think he did a tv show i remember it very, very clearly. He did a TV show called Blah, Blah, Blah in the very early 80s, 90, 82 or 81 or 83 or something like that. He had this fantastic mullet, but he <laughs> would... And I've talked about this before. He would, uh, you know, I think it was even live. 
and he would... Yeah, I think some of those early ones where there yeah. was Live and Sweaty was live, I think. Oh, before, I'm yeah. talking before that. His first one was blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, before that. And he would have, for example, five terminally ill cancer patients who had all been given less than 10 weeks to live on his show and just interview them and have a laugh with them. And just, this is what life's like. And it just blew my mind that you could do that. And he was so young. Yeah, so young and so clever and witty mm. and so original. I mean, just, just he was an absolute sort of explosion of, of yeah. creativity. He, he went on to create, just being the kind of cornerstone of this just huge kind of, basically this genre of media in Australia mm. that hadn't happened uh, before, really. Um, he should do a podcast. Andrew, you should do a podcast if you're listening. Oh, my goodness. Should that he would ever. be brilliant. Um, well, I'm ripping off enough rope doing this. I mean, <laughs> uh, And then he went on doing this fantastic... Yeah, then there was Live and Sweaty. He did a, a live TV show, a sports show, and then which got him in lots of, lots of controversy, which was great. And then he went on to do a whole bunch of other things. Um, Money or the Gun, which was also very, very good. And yeah. So he'd obviously... He was this deity. Of, he was. He absolutely... Of satire. Yeah. And he, did he call? How did he get in touch with you? If I can recall, we went and had lunch with him at, at a place called Cafe Otto in, in Glebe and it, it was at a time when we'd been meeting a few of our heroes and it was really pinch-yourself territory and we were sitting down with him in, 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 t- in about probably early 2001 having lunch and, and so on and he'd, he'd wanted to meet us and he'd... Oh, no, we actually, he first got us in the door at Triple M, actually. He was doing breakfast at Triple M and he got us in to write some stuff with, it, with him and... He got us a gig on Sunday nights um, with Guy Dobson, who still works at, at Australia. So he was the program director of Sydney Triple You worked at the time. with Dobbo? We worked with Dobbo. <laughs> Dobbo, Dobbo <laughs> was great to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought you might know Dobbo. Oh, how do I ever? <laughs> yeah, so he, he gave us our first gig Sunday nights, 9 till 12, yeah. Um, yeah. just up the road here in, in Bondi Junction, and we, we loved it. But then, yeah, I mean, Andrew eventually heard that, thought we were all right. We did. A, I think we did drive for a couple of weeks and over summer, and and he ended up deciding. He, he said to us, "I want to make television with you," and we were like, "Wow!" And he was like, "You guys should be on the screen." We we thought we'd write something for someone else who knew how to do television to do, but Andrew was, "No, no, you, you guys do it." And the pitch that he made to us was a, a brilliant pitch, and this was actually in the wording of the contract that we signed. He said, "You know, I will shelter you from all non-essential dickheads." Um, that was actually in the in the um, piece of paper that we signed, and that's. He said that he'd, when he'd started out, the reason that those shows had been so good was because um, producers, people like Mark Fitzgerald, who's still around in the industry, had sheltered him from ABC management and given him a space to do whatever he wanted to do. So he offered to do the same thing for us. And um, the great thing for us was he'd just finished doing breakfast, the ABC wanted him back to make television and eventually he made enough rope. But he used that leverage as, you know, brilliantly to give us a show as well, which was enormously kind of him. And, yeah, he, he gave us far more creative freedom than we would have had working with anyone else. So he essentially created an umbrella for us and taught us how to make television, um, for which we are eternally grateful. What kind of things... I mean, are we talking, like, as, as basic as here's the camera, here's how long is too long to talk? That, the editing, but it was mainly about choosing the, the right ideas. And, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we'd always done this process of brainstorming. We always had a million ideas, and it was about how you choose the one that you go and make. And... Um, some of the things that he, he taught us are, you know, things like it's got to actually be funny on the piece of paper. Don't go out rolling with a camera and expect you're going to get something funny. You won't or it won't be good enough. Um, you actually need stuff that's going to be funny in any scenario. So made us work a lot harder to refine our ideas. Uh, he 
we had a common love of comedy involving giant props. So, um, yes, <laughs> pretty much if you wanted to get a sketch up with Andrew, you just did a, a giant prop. I mean, I remember I once wrote a, a, um, a sketch, it was a parody of car, of car ads with monster trucks. It was called a brand called like Monstera and um, it required it for the final shot, the monster truck to just drive over other, other cars and it massively blew our budget. But Andrew just loved it because it had the monster truck. So that was that. And so somehow we found money to make that. Did you and take a date to the shoot? <laughs> yes, there's a certain theme in my comedy over the years. Um, yeah, so, I mean, he was just great to work with. He, he was really exacting. You often had to go back and shoot things multiple times. And there was a bit of a tension because we were so rigorous about doing things as a group, whereas in, in Andrew's creative process, you know, Andrew's the boss. He's, the, he's always the genius in the room, and he is the genius in the room. So, but we don't, we don't have any Andrew in, in our team. We've got, you know, a bunch of people... But there's no one Andrew Denton, so um, we worked in a pretty different way, and that sometimes was was hard at times. But I'm, there w there's no better way to learn how to do television. And he went and did it again with Hungry Beast. Those guys now, Dan Illick and and all those people are the next generation of making really interesting TV. Mark Fennell, and um, he's just a really good mentor. He's tough to work for in some ways, but but really, I mean, an amazing television school. There was a. Um the moment that you wrote about that student politician and, and the reaction was, you know, I'm going to drive around at 4am and pick up 12,000 copies of this paper and throw them in the lake. That's kind of a moment where you go like, oh, I guess we've arrived if we're <laughs> pissing off someone this much. At what point did you know as the chaser on television? When did you know, oh, we've that, arrived? Oh, that's, that's not hard to answer. The, the, we've created a few little moments of controversy in our time. Um, and... Our first series, The Election Chaser, was on air in the, for the 2001 election, which was at the end of that year. And so we're talking a couple of months after 9-11. And there was a joke in the first series of... And uh, any American listeners might find it very hard to believe that we did this, but a few months after 9-11, um, we broadcast a joke where there were two... There was, If you imagine a bar graph with two bars, one... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. saying Labor vote, one saying Liberal vote. The Labor vote... Let me just, let me just explain to, to people listening overseas. Labor in this country is the equivalent of the Democrats and Liberal is far from Liberal. They're the Republicans. So yeah. Labor is the left and Liberals are right. So essentially you have the, uh, the, the left-wing party leading by a huge amount. And that was what the case was in the polls. So there's two bars and then a plane flies into one of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the Labor vote drops 
in half <laughs> and the other, the other side wins the election. Now, that is not necessarily an unfair summary of what happened. What happened was that 9-11 happened and everyone freaked out and didn't want to change um, Parliament's dad and the whole business with the tamper, which was the boat full of uh, asylum seekers that got turned away by, by John Howard when he said, you know, we decide who comes into our country and circumstances in which they come. So those two things won him that election. Uh, that bar graph in the first edition of our first series, first episode, set a complaints record at the ABC, unsurprisingly. Um, but, yeah, we were... We were uh, that joke summarised what happened in, in a way that was very edgy to do in November... 2001, and yeah. so yeah, that that was a time when, yeah, I guess the ABC wondered what they got themselves into, but they backed us, and they usually they usually have. And it's been many years, and and, and you were 24. Yeah, must have been. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. So that's fantastic. It was pretty. It was pretty amazing that we were allowed to do that. And um, I mean, Sandra Levy, the head of the ABC or the head of television at the time, said, you know, I'm going to get all sorts of grief for this, but that's okay. That's what I'm here for. And we were actually going out and hassling politicians as well on the campaign trail. And that, I mean, obviously politicians are the ones who control ultimately the ABC. So we were antagonising the people who control ABC funding. And so they were fine with that. And that, in hindsight, was also a very brave thing for them to do. You mentioned, like, and this was the first, if people want to find out more about the controversy that the Trace has been involved with, yeah, they've done it a few times. But you mentioned the other night when we were on radio, you were kind enough to have me on your show, which I really enjoyed. I, I have it's a great thing, to have you. Mate, I have a thing for late night radio. I really do. I have such a thing for it. Um, you mentioned the other night there was one incident stemming from... Oh, I know where this is. Yeah, there was, some, there was an incident... St- uh, it never went to air. You were shooting something that never went to air, but it has since allowed you to get extra special attention every yeah. time you go through an airport. Um, so I'm wondering if you could kind of... It makes international travel somewhat difficult. Yeah. If you Hello, could ex- D- if you Department could ex- of Homeland Security. If it's you expand on that a little, because, uh, you know, I'm just... It's kind of interesting that, you know, that happened to you and, and you now carry this with you forever. I, yeah, and the funny thing was I was the most straight-laced and chicken of them. I, I would often have an idea and then back away from it. Like, at one point I suggested printing um, John Howard's phone number on the front cover of the newspaper, which we did, and got in terrible trouble. But having said that, I mean, it went, no, no, we can't do that. I was just joking about a thing that we could do. What? And the others were like, we're doing it. As a prime minister of our country at the time. Yeah, so we printed his his home phone number on the front cover of the newspaper. <laughs> at Kirribilli House. Yeah, yeah, under, the, the, under the headline, John Howard ignores the people, because it was a time of all the anti-war marches and uh-huh. so he put a picture of the marches john howard and all those people so call him at home on double nine double two whatever it was <laughs> and um they got a lot of calls <laughs> so yeah we we were bizarrely fearless in those days and um, I, I was timid but the others were like no no we're doing it so yeah uh, but so the story you're asking about is um to explain the context to, i've written sort of a version of this story which i perform which is really really fun but um <clears throat> The, there was a rugby test back in the day and two guys approached Vodafone, the mobile phone company that was sponsoring the, the Wallabies, and said, um, OK, we want to streak this test, this test match, right? Um, and for some reason, Vodafone crazily said, OK, well, if you put a Vodafone logo on your buttocks, we'll pay you legal fees. And, of course, Vodafone were then paying to disrupt their own event and everyone got very annoyed with Vodafone for, for doing this and so on. And so the guys got charged with, um, you know, whatever it is, entering a restricted area or something, and had a court appearance um, at Burwood Local Court. And so we decided 
um, to do two things. Firstly, we would send Julian Morrow and Andrew Hansen into the foyer of the courtroom with not guilty written on their buttocks. That was the first thing we'd do. And then the second thing we would do was that Chaz uh, would appear alongside the defendants when they arrived at the court um, naked except for a horse's hair wig arguing about their legal strategy with, you know, as though he were their barrister. So very puerile humour based on, you know, what they were doing. Um, and so we So like out. a legal wig, like so, ye, ye, yeah. ye oldie... The ye oldie barrister's wig, like the, the white the curly wig, bits on the side. Curly bits going yeah. down to the shoulders and... But nothing else. Nothing else, uh-huh. yeah. So then... They don't really mind getting nude, your mates, at the chase. No, they? they really... It was, yeah. The, the drop of the hat. I've never done it, fortunately. But So there we are, but we're local, local court. And the first bit goes perfectly well. Um, Jules and, and Andrew run, you know, they're, they're in a public toilet painting not guilty on each other's asses, which would have been amazing if they'd been busted. Um, ran out, ran out into the court, you know, into the court foyer, ran off again. Complete success. I was filming over the road, another guy's filming next to them. And uh, it turned out that I hadn't hit record at the right time. So I, I had a shot of um, them, you know, this sort of empty, co- the courtroom and then a courtroom from a different angle. I just completely stuffed it up. So the other one was all right. So, but then the thing is, rather than going back to the ABC, going, okay, we've got it, great, let's get out of here, we hung around for stage two, which was very stupid because in between the two incidents, they'd called the police and the police came and uh, arrested me and the other cameraman and and Jules. Uh, Andrew had sort of made off scot-free. So we got taken down to the the court and, and so on. And at the meantime... Chaz is cowering under a bush, naked, wondering what the hell's going on. Naked, with horse's with horse their wig, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so we got arrested and, and taken down there and charged with offensive behaviour and so on. I ended up pleading guilty to that and uh, the footage was seized by the police. We didn't get it back till after the, the TV series went to air. So in summary, because I'd been arrested and um, I've eventually got a Section 10 thing, so no conviction recorded, but because I've been arrested for the most silly thing imaginable, every time I want to go to the US, I've got to front up and tell them the story and explain, um, you know, exactly what it was and these youthful hijinks and so on. And so I'm in there next to someone who's got a drunk driving conviction and the other person's, you know, in the queue wanting to immigrate to the US and clearly is going to stay there forever. You're in the little room? Yeah. So I've you get just, to go to the second room? I've got to go, oh. yeah. No, well, this is at the, at the, the consulate. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you've got to do that and then eventually they keep you waiting for an hour and then eventually... The, the guy says, you've committed an offence that's in the, the category that doesn't disqualify you. So eventually I got it. But then I, I got to the airport. The first time I arrived at LAX and had to tell them this story because they're like, why have you got a visa? You're an Australian citizen. And I tell them the story and the guy's getting more and more annoyed, the border guard or whatever. He's just... And I'm just worried he's going to turn me around. It's, you know, it's a, it's a very long flight to LA. You're exhausted. I thought I had to go home. And he goes, that's free speech! <laughs> You can't get arrested for filming something. That's outrageous. And I was like, yes, brother. Welcome to the USA. So I loved it. Oh, man. That is, uh, that is fantastic. But I do, I do know, I'm sure there are people that watch The Chaser. I'm sure there are people that watch the adventures that you get up to, whether it be disrupting the, uh, was the Apex Summit. Apex Summit. Uh, which was fantastic. I'm just going to find it on YouTube because it's a, a brilliant it's a brilliant stunt. And just generally annoying politicians on the campaign trail. I'm sure there's people that watch it that, you know, just would say, look, mate, just be grateful for what you got. Pipe down. 
you know, let, let, let the leaders run our country and everything's just fine, thanks very much. What would you say to people who are just like, just, just, just shush up? Well, the good thing about us, about us life in Australia, I think, is that politicians are always fair game and people don't say that here. And the notion they have in America of, of respect for office and all this kind of stuff doesn't really exist in Australia. And, oh, yeah, we've never had that reaction. I mean, the, the amazing thing is that we've always been accepted as part of the process, bizarrely enough. You know, the federal police have always accepted that we have a right to be there and go up to the Prime Minister and hassle them. I mean, that's just an incredible thing. Every time it happens, you pinch yourself because you're not excluded. It, you, it is a democracy and that happens. And so it got to the point where we would be down at, um, on the foreshore at Kirribilli where John Howard, the former Prime Minister, would always go for a walk in the morning. He would always be there. And about, about 10 minutes before he'd come out, one cop was always the same guy. would go around and do a bit of a recce. You know, it was very insecure. If someone had wanted to t- take a shot, they would have got him. Um, and so he came along and he'd just sort of say, oh, g'day, boys, what are you doing today? And we'd have to explain what we were going to do. And he'd just say to us, OK, no, no projectiles, nothing sudden, but otherwise we could do whatever we wanted. So it was just <laughs> every day. It was like every day they would serve up John Howard to us. At um, So we just did, you know... 600 different things with him every morning and he just accepted that that was what it was and once he got a really good hit on us um, but at the other times he just p- pretended to laugh and went about his day and I just love that there's this ritual of oh, I've got to run the gauntlet of the satirists in the morning for my model and he, he's not going to change what he's doing we're not going to change what we're doing and I just love that about Australia that somehow that's just cool. That, that is that's pretty amazing and you, you know I think about that like when there's few countries in the world where you have that kind of access. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's walking across the foreshore of the harbour. I mean, if, if, you, if you tried to think, yeah, like snipers on any rooftop, there's nothing they could have done. On jet skis, please, come on. Yeah. John Woo. Parachutes. Whatever. Come on. Yeah, or on top of the harbour bridge, who knows? But it just, I love... Water skiing by with a blow dart. That's what I... <laughs> yeah. I do not recommend this and we're just making no, jokes, clearly. No, I, we're, we're praising the, the good sense of the federal police here. And yeah. Of course, that doesn't happen anymore, by the way. Tony Abbott doesn't do that, so you've missed but I guess chance. what I'm more thinking is, like, just folks who are watching who who might see you guys as like, come on, you spoiled brats, just leave them alone, just shut up, everything's all right. Well, the spoiled brats bit is the, is the bit that's the most pertinent, really, because the funny thing about it is, is we're from the same world as, as all these people. John Howard and Tony Abbott, the current Prime Minister, both went to the Sydney Uni Law School that we all went to, you know, went to similar schools. John Howard went to a public school. Most of us went to private schools, you know. So, actually, even though we're the court jesters, we're very much from that mm-hmm. environment and from a, from a privileged background, and I remember the very first time we went and did a stunt, John Howard was speaking at a by-election in Melbourne and there were all these protesters who turned up, all these Greens, whatever, waving banners off over it and the cops kept them over to one side so they couldn't disrupt things. We're in suits, so he walked straight in and up onto the stage <laughs> and, and that because we felt like we belonged there and yep. so that's the strange thing about it and it's the same. I mean, you know, John Stewart's part of the establishment in the US as well. It, the, the real outsiders don't get to the table and we're, we're conscious of that, you know, mm. we're not... We're not changing the world. We're not. We're, there's nothing revolutionary about us. We're within an existing. Yeah, but you are system. challenging. You are challenging the status quo, which, you, by the sounds of things, you had done since you were in high school, which many people don't. I certainly was far too afraid to for years, for well, a long time. It is strange because I'm. I'm not. I'm quite a timid person in a way. Like I, I don't. It's odd that I've ended up sort of challenging authority in my work in that way because I'm at other times I'm very compliant. So I don't know what this streak is and. Mm. I've, for better or for worse, I've got friends who are much braver than me and bring it out. So 
you can't. Why is it, in, why is it important to challenge authority? Well, it's important because it's important because authority. Firstly, authority is not always right, and that's something that was very clear during the Iraq War stuff. I mean, we were um, making a series called CNN and N, and we were at the time that we were going to war making jokes about the lack of evidence. And so we never, we never accepted that, that it was demonstrated. But that was very... Everyone thought that there must be some reason for going to war. And we were making jokes about the ridiculous lack of evidence at the time. And, of course, we were right. And so that... I mean, you're not always right, but, but that, I think, a lot of people learn from that, that you can't always trust people in power. They do need scrutiny, they, and they do need being taken down a peg. And Australians... Australians never think that their leaders are better than them. I mean, that's the thing. That's why everyone talks about Tony. They don't talk about Mr Abbott, the Prime Minister. Everyone talked about Julia or Kevin because we fundamentally... It's just in the, in the spirit of this country that you don't... And, and you resent someone if you, if you think that they think they're better than you. You, you want to cut them down. And, and that's, what, that's the, the role that we've played, really, in a sense, by going up to these people and, and doing it. And it's, it's not... It's, it's not massively challenging their authority or anything, it's, but it is just a little bit of a, a, little bit of a, a, a prick, I suppose, a, a little pinprick at those in power, and that's, that's kind of a good feeling. Who's the... Would you say... I don't know, this is a tough question. Would you say that Chaser leans in any direction, left or right? Well, it's sort of hard to, it's sort of hard to know because, I mean, most satire is left of centre, and that historically John Stewart always gets accused of this... We're pretty careful to go after both sides equally, but it's, I'm, given that so much of what we've done has been during the time that we've had conservative governments, I suppose on balance we've ended up attacking um, conservatives more. People assume that we're left-leaning because we work for the ABC, and look, all I will say is there's a spectrum of how people vote within the chaser, and, and I can't particularly I personally can never discuss how I vote because I work for the ABC. I've always I've also been fascinated by that, by the actual psychological makeup of those who sit a little more on the conservative side and those who sit a little more on the kind of, for want of a better word, liberal side. Yeah, and it, a lot of it's to do with your upbringing. Mm. I guess a lot of it's to do with the way that you... Like, I know people who have an enormous amount of respect for the Queen and, and for all these institutions and and... There's a place for that as well. I mean, you've got to treat some things as special and, and sacrosanct. And being leader of a country has to mean something. It has to have some sort of prestige associated with it. But I, I guess it's just that no one is above criticism. And that, that's a very Australian spirit. And so we are often in the role of critics. And I think as long as we dole it out to all, then we're doing an OK job. Right. You have not only written for The Chaser, you've also, you write for many newspapers. You write for you know, as a, an op-ed columnist for many things. Also, you've also written novels, three novels. Yeah. What's your... I'm, I'm interested in, you know, what's, what's, what's your workflow like when you're writing a novel? Do you just block everything else out? Do you get up in the morning? Do you have the typewriter in the room that faces the, the lake? <laughs> you oh, know? No, that would be so great. Yeah, I had these romantic ideas about having a writing desk and doing all this sort of stuff. And <laughs> I'm going on a retreat to go write. Yes. I'm just allowing my soul to, you know, flow out onto the Go page. to find Walden's Pond. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, they've all been different. I mean, I can't... Well, looking back at those things, I can't quite believe that I've achieved something that... that I've actually done something which took such a sustained effort because I'm very much a last-minute kind of person yeah. as, as per the... 
That's why I love radio because you know the microphone goes live at a certain time every day, and whether I you're ready or not. I love radio. Yeah, and it's also why I love live television because when you're done, it's done. Yeah, it's and over. That's it. Yeah, that's it. You walk, and it's one of the things I love about my job now is that there's literally nothing else to do. You know what? That's it, and I don't have to feel guilty. But with the novels, I started writing them at a time when it looked as though the chaser were going to stop working together. There was a period, oh, in about 2000 and, mm, 2004 or something, when we just it looked like we were going to get going in different directions. And I thought, well, what do I really want to do? And I have this great belief that you've got to try what you really want to do in life and fail at it before you can move on. And don't put it off. You've got to do it while you're young. And so I, I decided to not only live by that principle but write a novel about that. And so I went and enrolled in a master's course at, at UTS, which was next door to the ABC conveniently, and went and took classes there and all that kind of thing because I'd, I'd always wanted to do it. I'd always grown up reading particularly comic novels and just thought, what a great medium that is and uh, a few novelists I wrote particularly Nick Earls a, a great writer from Brisbane I read those books and I kind of went maybe I could you know maybe I could have a crack at it and no disrespect to Nick Earls who's a great writer but I kind of went read him and thought that this is someone from my world this is someone like me uh, and the, the world in Brisbane that he described is very much like the inner city somewhat privileged world that I knew so I kind of thought what a great thing to be able to do and so I wrote uh, the first novel, Disco Boy, which is about a guy who finishes um, finishes law school. Doesn't you know? Doesn't he wants to to be a, a, a singer songwriter? He's stuck in this world where he doesn't want to work in law, but he's got a job being a DJ at Crappy Twenty First. So he goes out, and instead of playing the music that he's written that he loves, he's got to play Come On Eileen every weekend for the rest of his life. And so he's stuck in a rut. And I, I had a lot of friends at the time who were in that kind of rut, and. and the, the book's all about, you know, taking a shot. And it, mm. it's not... I suppose it's kind of like a middle-class eight-mile in a way. <laughs> you know, if you, get, you only get one shot... That but what's, but what's, your, what's your process when you are writing? Do you just kind of get 300 words out here or there? You're like, you sit down, I've got to write 10 pages a day, you've got to write 300 words a day? Well, I, I do all those calculations and then I completely fall short of them and have to do a massive rush at the end. And um, the great thing about writing novels is you do the massive rush, do your first draft, and then you get to edit it. So ah. unlike say making television where you have to get it done and then it goes to error or whatever, you get to go back and keep revising. So by the time it's finished, it's actually there's actually a degree of craft in it. But no, it's all a hopeless last-minute rush and mm. I have this terrible thing of only really getting motivated by terrifying deadlines. But, but that works. If you give me a deadline, I'll meet the deadline. Um, I might try and push it back a couple of days, but I will eventually meet it. And that's um, one of the things about being creative is that you have to be really honest, I think, about your own flaws and your own strengths and I'm, I might like to think that I'd get up at 6am every day and do yoga and, and be healthy and you know, I'd love, I honestly would love to do that but that has never happened and so if I want to do what I want to do I've got to find a way that works within my limitations and that tends to be go to a cafe, um, sit there for a couple of hours, have a coffee, while the coffee's hitting you, while you're at peak caffeine you bash out whatever one or two thousand words in a huge and, and that's it and then that's it, you're done for the day. And I can keep doing that. I can keep going and having coffee and writing a bit more. What I can't do is change who I am. So I've found a way that fits my own particular flaws or, or strengths or whatever it is. And I think that's really important. If you, if you, a lot of people ask me how to write. And I've read a million different articles by novelists because they all write a how I write little template thing. And it's completely different. Dan Brown gets up at 4 a.m. And, and somehow writes and, you know, good for him. I can't do that. So... You just have to figure out what, what actually suits you. And I'm very good at going and having coffee, so that's my writing practice. Well, thank, thanks for sharing um, that. I mean, because that, that does kind of 
fit in with what and how I work. I tend to time my creative output for mornings around coffee time. Yeah. Because that's pretty much when it's it. Everything else comes later. That's yeah. good. And, uh, yeah, mornings, particularly since I started working in the evenings, getting a, doing a, a, a sort of an hour of power, you know, 11, 11 till 12 or whatever, that's enough. You just do that over and over again and before you know it, you've got an yeah. 80,000-word novel and, yeah. and you can go from there. And, and the, the total of it, I mean, if you look at the amount of words that is, it's completely daunting. But, yeah. but if you do it little bit by little bit, you that's, actually get there. That's how you do long. everything. How do you eat an elephant? A bite at a time. That's right. That's a very good analogy, yes. That's pretty much, pretty much it. Uh, speaking of writing and people who write enormous things, you, through your job, through being who you are, you've managed to, you've interviewed some pretty interesting people. And I, we did touch on this the other night when I was on your show. Uh, we talked about Game of Thrones. Yeah. And you got to meet an interview, in fact, George R. R. Martin. Oh, this was, this was, in, this was an insane gig. I still don't know what, who pulled out that I got it, but... Um, yeah, last year um, George R. R. Martin came out to go to the Supernova um, th- kind of... It's like an Australian Comic Con. Yeah, it's an Australian Comic Con. And so he had a, a gig at the Sydney Opera House on the, at the Concert Hall, which is just the room in Australia. You know, if there's mm. one place you want to go and... Played it a couple of times, it's pretty good. Yeah, it? they've... Yeah, <laughs> it's the big room. The main room! Absolutely. And, <laughs> and basically the great thing about it is that whenever the Opera House offer, almost anyone in the world will go, yeah, Opera House, of course, I've heard of that, you know. So he came and did it, and it wasn't just him. Lena Headey, um, who plays Cersei. God, Joffrey's mum. Joffrey's mum. And uh, Catelyn Stark, who's... What's, what's her name? I can't ah, remember. there was a red wedding and she didn't make it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, spoiler alert. Yeah, um, in case you haven't missed it. Uh, Michelle Fairley. So yeah. she came out as well. And, and so I had this amazing thing of trying to interview, to work out how to interview them and, and how to structure the whole thing. And, yeah. It was just the best feeling. I mean, it was a room full of people who knew probably more about Game of Thrones than I did. Uh-huh. So, but the I mean, as with all these things, the, the, the main thing I've learned about interviewing from doing radio and all this stuff is that you don't need to know the answer to the question. And you're there as the fan, you're there as a member of the public. You don't, you know, some interviewers ask very long convoluted questions to try and demonstrate how much they know. And I've had to learn, you don't do that. You just, just ask a simple question and then the answer will be interesting and then you go from there and follow up. And you're, you're just there like any member of the public. You're not anyone special. You just happen to have been given this, this gig. And so we went from there. And um, it was really funny because Lena Headey, uh, who plays Cersei, kept making jokes about incest. It was just crazy. So I'd just be asking her all this sort of stuff and she kept playing to the crowd and making jokes about having sex with her brother. And I just kept losing it and just completely losing my thread. And the, the audience would just kill themselves I just kind of went, well, I've got to, I got to go with this. Go so go. just we just went with it, and um, in the end, I hope it was entertaining, but in the end, then, then George came out after about half an hour, and suddenly the tone changed. It was just like, Master, please speak. <laughs> and he, it, was, it, was, it was basically like um, you'd ask a question, the answer would be 10 minutes long. Every yeah. one of those 10 minutes would be fascinating. Then you'd just ask another one. It, it was the easiest interviewing job ever. You could have said, George, what do you think? What do you think? And he just, it was just amazing. Did, was he a nice guy? So nice and very nervous. He was very nervous about the opera house. I mean, it's a big space. Yeah. There are thousands of people in the room. And he was, he was terrified, which was good because I was as well. So the two of us kind of had this little, oh, this is, this is pretty was scary. It, he's like, from what I know, I don't know enough about this and people are probably going to get upset when I ask, but wasn't he like an AD&D oh, he's, guy? Oh, he's right into all that sort of yeah. stuff. I mean, he, he's a hardcore fantasy guy. That's 
one of the great things about him is that he understands his audience and he is of his audience. And so he goes to all the conventions and, and gives the fans what they want. And he's, he, I really admire the guy. He sat there signing thousands of autographs, thousands at this event, at, at this um, thing and whatever, and during his tour. And he could have pulled out of that. He could have said, I don't want to do autographs. Mm. But he didn't because even though he is one of the world's best-selling authors now, he remembers what it's like and it took him so long to make it that he, he just, he'll keep giving up. And a lot of the people, I had to acknowledge it at some point that he was sitting there with us instead of writing the next book and all that sort of stuff because the audience were going to ask that. And, and the point is he's, he's worked so hard for this and he's enjoying it and good on him. He's a very, very inspiring guy. And, um, yeah, a really, a really great pleasure to interview and, and the easiest person I've ever interviewed. But we did touch on this the other night and, honestly, I felt, I felt quite scared when we started talking about um, Game of Thrones watching habits in Australia because I work for a, you know, I, I work for a commercial broadcaster. I have worked for Foxtel in the past and we started talking about that, that 1.5 million people watched it in Australia that didn't pay for it. Yeah. And it did, I did kind of get the willies a bit. I was like, Ooh, I'm scary now. <laughs> I did a bit of an intro to the, to the chat. I, was, I wasn't sure what to do, but I kind of thought, well, I've got to go out there and sort of just do a bit of an intro and set it up. So I, I kind of wrote a couple of minutes worth of stand-up kind of gags and I congratulated them on being the first ever Australian audience to pay for a Game of Thrones thing. <laughs> and, yeah, that went well. There was a... There was a, there was a uh, the laugh there was very much a, yeah, you got us. Yeah. And, but that's, that's what it is, right? I mean, you, yeah. you, you might not pay for Game of Thrones and that's a whole other conversation, but if you go and pay for the fan event... You've, you know, you've, yeah. you've given him money and you've given them more money. Well, on that, as someone who's been a media, a content creator for nearly 15 years and someone who works in media every single day, what are your thoughts about, you know, we touched a bit on it the other night and, you know, I, I mentioned where I stand, like the kind of thing we're doing right now, podcasting and independent broadcasting, mm. creating content that you no longer need a network for, that you go directly to your audience without a middle, a middle party. Um, do you... How do you feel about that? I mean, that's, that's kind of where I certainly see it going. Well, it is the way it's going, and people do very well out of this. The problem is, though, that you, how, do you get a, how do you get a salary? I mean, I've, I've been very lucky because I've worked for the ABC on and off since I was 24, whatever, whatever we said, 24. So, you know, for the past 13 years, I've been working for the ABC. I now have a salaried job working in radio every day. That gives me space to, to do novels and all this kind of stuff that, that doesn't make much money. Now... That's very fortunate for me. And if I didn't have a job like that, I'd probably start a podcast or do whatever to try and do it. But it's very hard to get paid. And I, I don't know how that's going to play out because um, we're just getting so used to the idea of not paying for content that mm. somewhere in the process people have to get paid. And, and that's what I struggle with. I mean, I, you know, people pirated our TV shows at huge lengths before the, the ABC invented iView and when we were slightly more popular than we are today. Um, we, we had one of the most bit-torrented shows in Australia and we were cool with that. I mean, we, we thought it was flattering. But we were, getting, we were already getting paid. So I guess, I mean, the people from Game of Thrones, the actual producers say that they're flattered by it. It doesn't really bother them very much. And we're already in a period where you, it's very hard to sell DVDs. I mean, mm. our DVD sales died and all that kind of stuff. So I'd, I'm, we're kind of in a state of flux, but we need to get to a point where enough people are, are getting paid somehow. And I don't know, I don't know what the model is yet. It's a process of evolution, mm. but you know, if we don't, ha you can't keep expecting people to do quality content for free. Mm. So 
if you if you know if you pirate a band's albums and go and see the the gig, to me in a sense that's sort of it's sort of like another way around it. I don't have mm-hmm. much of a problem with that, but at some point you gotta you gotta pay something, and it's about respecting people as well. I mean, when I bought the Game of Thrones books, I was del- delighted to give George Martin some of my money, you know, because I love what he does. And so you just got to remember the people who actually create this stuff and there's a degree of respect that has to happen and not from everyone and things will be pirated but maybe you discover something for free you know down the track go and buy something from the from them you know just mm. if you've got something for free and you love it pay at some point that's it's it's got to happen at some point or it won't happen yeah. anymore it does and we did mention this briefly the other night and it's sad there's many things that make me sad i'm sorry no, that's all right Okay, I try not to be sad about all of them. I try to control the things that I can... You're, you're generally a fairly up... Oh, well, that's because I'm on medication. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I generally tend to accept the things I cannot change and have the courage to change the things I can. Yeah. Um, but I tend not to want to accept the things that I cannot change when it comes to internet speeds in Australia. And huh. certainly when it comes to content, when it comes to watching television... Um, watching free. Is it slower, though? I God don't... damn, it's so slow here. Okay, because I've got a cable connection here, and I've got... Which is pretty fast. And whenever I've been in the States, I've been on Wi-Fi, which has been pretty crappy, so maybe... What's, how fast is your home connection? 100 megabit. That's pretty fast. It's not bad. But you're, you know, you're a guy who's into these kind of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm uh, talking, like, general punter available. Well, if you've got a Foxtel plug, you can get that. But, no, look... I mean, that's, it's essential, isn't it? To, I mean, mm. I, I was watching the, the World Cup this morning on my tablet without getting out of bed. And because I have a fast internet connection, it was in high definition. Yeah. I don't want to watch that in standard definition. So yeah. it's not, I, can't, I can't even hack it. How great's the, the multi-view? Oh, my God. It is it's just, the, that's future television right there. I couldn't believe that something so amazing had been created. That, yeah. you know, because we as taxpayers have bought the rights to the World Cup, SBS have this app on the tablet. And you can only get it if you're in Australia, by the way. Which where you can look back at any moment of the World Cup from any one of twelve angles, including oh. a slow mo cam. So I go back and so watch did every SBS goal. build that, or is it a, did FIFA build it? I don't know because I have a feeling. It's, I, it's I have of a such feeling, complexity. Yeah. It looks like FIFA. I had the same thought. FIFA made this amazing app. That, it's f- unbelievable. And in fact, because it accesses um, commentary that's not FIFA, that's not SBS's. I think it probably is from yeah, FIFA. It's but fantastic. whatever it is, no. And so I don't want to. I can't. Deal. Having seen that, I can't go back to... Stand. I want to watch the Super Bowl with that app. Yeah, exactly. I can't go back to, to, to slow. So Or just one... You just even watch, I'll watch that game. The, we're talking about the America... Um, uh, uh, Portugal. Portugal game yeah. that happened this morning. Uh, the, the results of... The aftermath of which is probably well and truly over by now by the yeah. time people hear this, but that happened like only a few hours ago. And I was watching it on the TV in the corner there and, and not on my laptop because I was writing your questions. And um, I thought I should really be watching this on a laptop because I wanted to see Ronaldo not passing the ball. <laughs> I wanted to see Ronaldo making faces when people weren't passing the ball to him. And I wanted, you know, but you can do that on the multi Yeah, I mean, the other day I went back a couple of days after the, um, the Australia-Netherlands game and I watched Tim Cahill's amazing volley from every angle repeatedly. Yeah. It was, and it, I'm going to go back and keep doing that. It's never going to get old. And it's true. I mean, that's, all this stuff is, is, is just beginning to open up for us. Yeah. It's very, very exciting, but it does require fast internet stuff. And I mean, yeah. you know, if we were starting The Chaser now, if we, were, if we were 22 now and had enough money, we could probably, for the amount of money we spent to start that newspaper, we could buy cameras now and edit suites and we could make our own 
stuff and, and put it online and, and try and get discovered that way. But again, you'd need to have the internet speeds. And, and, but that's what you did. And this is why I love the idea that you made this paper. You, you Pre-YouTube, pre-podcasting, you created something and you disrupted it enough that it, and it was of such quality that, and you built such an audience that people above that went, something's going on here, we need to pick this up. And when people ask me, you know, oh, I'd really love a job in radio, what do I do? And I, I just tell them, listen, you know, I, I know for a fact that guys who are program directors at, uh, at DMG and, and ARN and uh, SCA, uh, sorry, Daily Mail Group, group yeah. uh, Southern Cross Stereo and the Australian Radio Network, the people that they're considering to hire as announcers have had podcasts on there for a year at least. Right. Yeah. They're not hiring anyone straight out of school. That's, that is, if you want to, yeah, if you want to get one message from, from this discussion, that's probably it in terms of creativity because I know that's what you're, you're all about. The... Just do it. If you, the, the, there are it. no barriers Just anymore. There's, there's, there's no excuse not to do it. Like people say, I want to get into radio, and the fact is you can do it yourself. People say, I want From to... From your phone. Yeah, do it. <laughs> Just, Just if you want to make TV, that's probably relatively difficult, but... but the gear, the gear is only a couple of thousand dollars. I mean, every every laptop you've got there now has an edit, edit suite in it. You know, yeah. like my phone has an edit suite. Yeah, I edit things on my iPhone. Yeah, so it's crazy. The, the the bottom line is that the barriers aren't there anymore. We had barriers a bit with the printing and so on, and mm. we just would have started a website now, which would have cost us nothing. Um, but it's very exciting that that those barriers aren't there anymore. But the strange thing is that that the traditional media, the gatekeepers are still powerful because they're the ones with the money. I mean, you talk about those radio stations. Mm. They're the ones who are going to pay you to, to, do, to do the job. And it's... Until we look, get the business model right. Until we get the business model right. I mean, this is, this is the thing, right? If, if you build up a podcast... I mean, I really hope you... you, you know, you, I'm, no, it's not, not why you're doing it, but podcasts like this eventually down the track, it, it should be some sort of income. Right? It'd be nice. Yeah, I mean, that's what... Yeah. That's what... I mean, and even people like Mark Maron in the, in the US, like, they've got TV series out of it. But wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to do a TV series if we could just be like, yeah, the podcast's great. Mm. So it's going to come down to eventually, I think, people just being willing to, to, to kick money into the ring. Mm. And that, that's why I love this, the crowdsourcing and the, the crowdfunding that's going on now, is that if you convince people that an idea is a good idea, they'll do it. And I, there's a comic I follow on, on um, Twitter called uh, Sarah Benincasa, and she's just, she asked for 15 grand to go and do a stand-up tour in places she couldn't otherwise get to. She's now at ten grand because people like what she does, mm-hmm. and it's that simple. So, in, in a sense, it's almost like this weird kind of direct capitalism. But it's we all do it together. You used to have to go and ask the Medici's to kick in, to, so you could do your painting. Now you just got to ask a lot of people to kick in, kick in a dollar, and you can do it. So, look, I think we're I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to get to a point where you can actually create things and, and be paid by a lot of people paying a very small amount. And we used to say when we started the chase that that's all we needed to do. We needed to get, you know, a couple of thousand people to pay a small amount and then we could keep doing. We didn't quite make it in that business model. We went to old media. But I like to think that the next chaser, whoever there is now in their 20s who are going to go up and change everything, that they will bypass the old business Mm. models. Do you know, have any idea who the new chaser is, the next chaser? Well, there are lots of people like us in their 20s who we've got working for us on some of the TV shows we're doing, like The Checkout. And um, we, we just started a theatre, The Chaser. We just opened this venue called Giant Dwarf in Redford and we've got a lot of these young people doing gigs. Like there's a night called Story Club where they go and basically it's almost like stand-up. They read out funny stories. And so those guys are going to go places, I'm sure. But they're still my, mostly in the sort of network television. We're trying to get them gigs in network television, of course. So... Even they are in their mid twenties are probably 
to it. So it's people who are probably finishing school now. So if you're if if you're in your teen if you're in your teens now, you've got ten years where you don't really need to earn money, where you can bum off your parents and sleep on couches and all that kind of stuff. Those are the people who are going to do the exciting stuff because we did that. We we had no money for many years, and that that's how we got to where we are. And I like to think that that we, you know we went to the ABC. The next generation might not need to go to any network at all. Mm. They'll just do it. I certainly hope so. You will start. We've got to get you out of here. Um, you have contact with a large swathe of Australians on a daily basis doing your nightly show um, here in Sydney, and you got more of a clue, I guess, than I sure, sure do about, you know, just about the general feeling in Australia. How are, how are we doing? It's, it's a tough one to say. I mean, the politics has been tempestuous, um, I guess, ever since Kevin Rudd. It, we've had this thing of everyone looking to change leaders the whole time. And so I think that's still continuing. And at both state and federal level, there's just this constant rumbling of discontent. We're becoming more and more like Italy or Japan, where they just discard leaders left, right and centre. And so there's, there are obviously... Every, every government we've had for the past few years has been behind in the polls. So that's bubbling away in that sense. But in a broad sense, I feel like we feel a bit more comfortable in the world than we did. I, I think there was a lot of fear with the financial crisis. There was a lot of nervousness... And I think we now feel that we're doing we're doing all right, and then I, I hope so. Um, and look, it, it's hard to know. I the people that I speak to in our audience, are, I, I'm the diversion. So I, I'm I'm there to do a quiz. I'm there to, to talk to interesting people and and make their evenings pleasant. So I, I don't know how how much people are struggling. I know farmers are doing it tough because one of the great things about my show is I get to talk to people in the backs of tractors and all that kind of stuff. But it's a time of transition. I mean, we've talked about that in the media, but it's the same in every industry. There's no jobs anymore where you can be confident you're going to have it for the whole time. You know, someone in another country can, can do it instead of you, potentially. Mm. And so I, I guess it's a time of, of embracing digital, embracing change and trying to get ahead of the curve. And people who do that will, will do very well. And it's also a time where Australians can probably into the rest of the world more easily than ever before, and you've done that in, in your career, bi-coastal, as, as, as you say. But the best of Australia we know now can, can go on and take on the world. If you do a good album here, you'll get picked up, you know. I mean, Iggy Azalea, perfect example of that. You, you, the, the barriers are very low. If you, if you write a good movie now, you can be David Michaud and do your next project with Brad Pitt in Hollywood, you know. Um, and so, particularly in, for the creative world, we're not isolated anymore. We're, we're increasingly part of the main game. So for people doing the sort of stuff that I do, it's probably the most exciting time it's ever been. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming out to my house this morning, man. Thank you. It's been great. It's been really good. And thanks again for having me on your... And it comes back to... Like, well, I was on your radio show the other night and we went on air between 9 and 10. And my father used to broadcast, he used to do a show in Czech at 4EB. Really? Yeah, in Brisbane. I think EB was ethnic broadcasting. Because yeah, how charming. It was a simpler time. Um, and I remember going in, there was something so special about being in that super quiet room. Because their rooms, like, if you've never been in a radio studio, <clears throat> they're soundproofed and they don't echo. They're very, yeah. very. It's a, it's a very it's sort of a hermetically sealed. Yeah, if you've space. never been in one, it's odd for the first little while of getting used to this quietness that doesn't exist anywhere else. And there's something about being on a mic and talking about stuff late at night, and it's a, 
you know, much like we're doing now, but I don't know, I just like it when it's dark outside and you're talking about it. Yeah, and really the, the, the really good stuff with radio is when, when the rest, you, you lose your self-consciousness. Yeah. And that's when, when, I remember when I first started doing late nights at Triple M and, and just this, the idea that I was speaking to a microphone and that the words were somehow going out into the airwaves around me was terrifying and mm. I was really nervous about it. But now it's just a conversation and, if, and you're talking to the people in the room and other people are there as well. And it's lovely. And, and the thing that's really nice about what I do is that um, people feel like you're part of their lives. People feel like they know you. And they do. And uh, people come to me and, and say, I listen to your show, you know, I enjoy it. And they feel like I'm already their friend. And for someone who's, who's grown up being relatively timid and, you know, at the back kind of n not front of centre in what Chase has been doing, it's a very nice position to, to be in. And I feel very lucky to, to have one of, the, one of the best jobs going in the old media. So while things are, tra are, are, are transforming and I'm watching it with great excitement and trying to participate in other fields, I'm very, very lucky to, to have the gig that I have. And I've got to tell you, like, from a radio nerd point of view, man, you panel well. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you panel well. Some people... I'll tell you who else is an exceptional panel op? Kyle Sanderlands. Man can Does run... Does he panel? Bro, the guy can oh. run a board. He can okay. run a board. Well, this is the thing. This is the thing about super impressive. The ABC, right? I've only I have to I had to do it. So, when I first did that show, um, we're talking about pushing all the buttons. Pushing like every, all the buttons. Every time you hear, you're listening to Nights with Dominic Knight on the ABC. Like whenever yeah. you hear that, that's because Don's pushed a button. Yeah, that's right. And, and there's delays to get in and out of, it's and there's very all kinds. Yeah. yeah. And um, when I first started, I'd only been working there for four days, and I had to go on air doing this incredibly complicated show all around the state and with all these buttons that make different promos happen on, in Canberra or Sydney or Newcastle, and whatever. Phones going to where? Phones, all this sort of stuff. And I had to do it with four days of not only learning how to panel, but learning everything else I had to do for the show as well with a new style of broadcasting. And it really was sink or swim. And uh, there's no one to panel up for you. I mean, at Radio National, they, they still do that. But 702, we don't, you know, that, that, those days are over. So, um, mm. yeah, fortunately I loved it. And, and it's, it's great. And uh, if you can panel... There's always work for you in radio. That's, that's, yeah, that's you one better thing. believe it. You better believe it. All right, I'm going to take your photo and then we'll slip off into this beautiful winter's day. It is a beautiful winter's day. Thank you. It's been an absolute privilege. Thanks, brother. Follow me on Twitter, at Domknight, D-O-M-K-N-I-G-H-T. All right. Oh, there's cameras over there. Okay, we'll do it. And that, friends and lovers, is Dom Knight. You can follow him on Twitter at Dom Knight, D-O-M-K-N-I-G-H-T. Let him know you heard him here. I'm sure he'd get a kick out of it. Listen to him on the radio. He's got a great show. It's on 702 in uh, Sydney. It's on 666 in Canberra. It's You can find You can Google it. You know how to work the internet. Um, if you need me through the week, you, you can find me. If you found this podcast, you can find me. Just uh, subscribe to the email list at osherginsberg.com and I can respond to you there. That's the email address that I write back to people on. And don't forget to ask a question for the first anniversary show. Just click leave a voicemail on uh, osherginsberg.com and um, ask away. Hope you have a good week. Um, I saw the promos for Batch. Batch is starting soon. I'm stoked to get to see it. Should I do a Batch episode? What do you reckon? Let me know. I'm going to go to sleep and get up very early and watch some soccer. But have a good week. Thank you for being here. All right. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 